Hello everyone, it's June 29th, 2021, and this week we're doing a review of Transporter 2, not the 2005 Jason Statham vehicle, but the upcoming SpaceX one with all the satellites. What's on board? What do they do? Might there be DoveSats stashed away somewhere? Let's do it, and liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 315 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I was just thinking how happy, uh, how lucky we are that we always clear the tower successfully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if we didn't, they wouldn't hear from us. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah, something went horribly amiss. Mm. I don't even know how it developed because I kind of unconscious or subconsciously, unconsciously, kind of you know made these thematic parallels with well, not thematic, but uh, you know these parallels um, mm. with mm. launching. You know, so you have to do orbit the show and then we transition. But I don't remember intentionally doing that really i guess i did but um i don't even know where all that came from so <laughs> i always loved it <laughs> yeah i don't remember either i remember like really early on i don't i don't know if it was actually the first episode i guess we could figure it out but like i remember you um in in our our show notes like typing like you know on the next orbit or something like that at the end of the show and i was just like oh that's really good um <laughs> and it, to me it felt very intentional because it, it, if i hadn't seen it before and i guess it, it just didn't even occur to me that you could have been thinking of it before or it could have just been uh something that you you know you just did on the spur of the moment but i feel like tying them all together has felt has felt pretty intentional. But I don't remember having that intention. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's just kind of how that stuff works. But uh, there hasn't, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot going on uh, in the world of space flight. Um, there's always, you know, these very incremental things going on at Boca Chica. But and we haven't talked about that in a while. And uh, we'll talk about it very briefly in the show. But, um, yeah, like, uh, I, I guess we're all just kind of waiting for, like, the next big Starship launch or mm -hmm. uh, the Blue Origin, um, what am I trying to say, New Shepard. Oh, New, New Shepard. Yeah. Yeah, right, we got the, the month of sending billionaires up. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fast approaching. <laughs> Transporter 2 payloads. So uh, the Transporter 2 launch that just occurred uh, with um, something like 88 satellites, right? So a lot of stuff. And I guess we're just going to go down a list of exactly, you know, or what some of it was. Not all of it. This isn't an exhaustive list. Yeah. First off, it hasn't launched. It was supposed... I thought it already launched. It was supposed... Yeah. It was supposed to launch on Thursday the 24th, um, and it got delayed to Tuesday the 29th, the day that the show comes out, um, with a backup date on Wednesday the 30th. But I wanted to do this because last week, I don't know if it made it through the edit or not, but in uh, upcoming space flight events, I said, uh, the one thing I don't need to look up and can confidently state is that there is a, a Dove, Planet sorry. Labs Dove. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That, there, that there's no it. Dove on here. There's not a single <laughs> Dove one of them. Yeah, I know, right? Every, everybody in the chat is shocked. Everybody uh, recording is shocked. <laughs> Uh, okay. So I'm like, well, what, what the heck is on here? Cause like, if I'm, if I'm going to make up crazy, uh, crazy claims, because I don't think that there's any way that I'm going to be wrong, I, I do need to go back in and find out what's right. So, um, first off, let's talk about the booster. This is, uh, B1060. Um, this is its eighth mission. It's first flight, eighth mission, right? The first time it flew was June of 2020, and it's already <laughs> up to its eighth mission. 
Um, Hot and in gate. fact, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So it did four consecutive, four launches in four consecutive calendar months, January, February, March, April. And uh, B-1060 also holds the fleet turnaround record at 27 days. So like this thing is a, is a rock star. Granted, most of its flights have been Skylab, Star, Starlink, Starlink. Uh, have been Starlink <laughs> launches, uh, which is really nice because like the customer plays nice for those. Um, you know, it's, it's a little like inside trader or insider trading, uh, where, where you, you know, everything is just perfect to be able to spit those things out one after the other after the other. But I mean, still, this, this thing is just uh, a workhorse. Uh, so Transporter 2 features, yes, David, you got it right, 88 payloads. Um, and I expect that 88 is going to be the exact number that flies, um, given that everybody was ready uh, to fly on Thursday assuming that the issue that bumped them back had to do with the vehicle and not with the payload. Um, everybody would have been ready to go on uh, Thursday. And so, you know, we already would know exactly who's going to be flying, but there were some options here. Um, they were going to be able to move uh, vehicles uh, from one Sherpa to another. Um, and they even had a backup payload that was not, in best case scenario would not be flying, but if somebody had to back out, they could stick um, this uh, this extra payload in there. But so 88 payloads, that's less than the 143 that flew on Transporter 1, um, but it is a higher mass uh, of uh, customer vehicle mass, right? It's heavier. And so uh, I, I mentioned the delay already from uh Thursday last week to Tuesday this week. And even their backup uh, is still within the month of June, which would be nice because that would um, be the uh, fourth calendar month that SpaceX has launched four vehicles uh, within a single calendar month for, for, for this year. So that, that would be pretty cool. Um, you know, just like if we're, if we celebrate round numbers, we can celebrate that. <laughs> um, so like I said, there, there are going to be two different, uh, Sherpa vehicles on board. Sherpa is the, uh, the, um, the dispenser. Um, one of them is a Sherpa FX2. So Sherpa FX2 is what spaceflight calls their go now vehicle. Uh, they have, they have three different, uh, models of, of Sherpa. Um, one is go now, one is go fast, one is go far. And so, uh, Sherpa FX is the go now. Um, and this is the second FX that's flown. Um, so it, it's relatively boring as far as a space vehicle goes. It has no propulsion. Uh, this vehicle is carrying potentially 25, uh, deployable, uh, vehicles in total. 12 of those will actually, uh, have their own method of propulsion. Um, so Swarm Technologies is flying 12 space bees. Four of them have engines. Uh, Astrocast, uh, they're, they're flying five vehicles and all five have propulsion and Hawkeye 360, uh, is flying their Hawk vehicle. Three of them on Sherpa FX2. Um, 
and then three of them on on the other Sherpa, and, and all six of those uh, have their own propulsion. Sherpa FX2 has got um, three payloads that won't be deployed. They're called hosted payloads. And uh, hosted payload is a particularly generous phrase because these things uh, have basically mechanical activation switches. They have the screws holding them onto Sherpa and nothing else. No power, no data interfaces, no nothing. Um, so it's, it's kind of fun uh, that, they, that they call them hosted. It's basically, you ain't going nowhere. Um, <laughs> and and what, what's fun is that the FCC filing only lists two of them as having uh, communication, which is really interesting if you think about the fact that there are three of them with no data interface so like what the heck are you doing are you flying a cheese um so the, the two with communications are uh near space launches uh tag set to keplerian technologies soars that's in all caps um and then the one without uh without uh communications on board is stellar explorations nfb4 super uh, super catchy. So NFB4 is a semi-passive radar retroreflector. So now things start to make sense. A and yeah, it's semi-passive. Um, as far as th they say that it's going to be uh, sending back modulated reflections of ground-based radar pings. And so I think a modulated reflection means that they can maybe send data down in a radar reflection. I think that would be really cool. I think it's more likely that they're wiggling the, uh, the mirror somehow to help um, get a better image of the mirror. Um, maybe there's something that they can do to make the interferometry work better or something like that. Uh, but yeah, semi-passive retroreflector, I think is a, is a cool, uh, a cool phrase. So that's, that's FX2. The other vehicle is Sherpa LTE1. LTE is the go far version of Sherpa. This whole, uh, set of nomenclature is really cracking me up. So, so it, it's, it's the go far version, which indicates that it has an engine on it. It's actually flying with, um, an Apollo. Uh, Apollo Fusion is the manufacturer, one of their uh, electric propulsion engines. And uh, Go Far is kind of ironic because it's not going to fire up that engine until it's dispensed all of its payloads. And then it's going to fire up that engine to deorbit itself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, granted, this is the first time a Sherpa's flown with propulsion and you need to test things. I'm like, okay, I get it. But like, still, it's, it's really funny that they've got the, the go now, which is supposed to be the, the rapid response style vehicle. And then the go far and the go far basically slams into the atmosphere as fast as it can. So, uh, LTE1 has got 14 deployable payloads roughly because some things might get swapped around. Um, and nine of those have, um, propulsion on board themselves. So there are five Cleos space uh, KSM-2s. There is uh, a vehicle from Astro Space Lab uh, called Arthur One, which I really like because my cat, my old cat's name was Arthur. Uh, and then uh, as before, there are, there are three Hawks on there. Now, um, LTE-1, not only does it have an engine? But guys, it has two cameras. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to see some deployment footage. I think that'd be pretty cool. 
Uh, both of these vehicles um, have uh, six hours for their primary mission is what they applied for with the, the FCC. Um, and, and they've got a bunch of backups, you know, because it's it's space. Uh, they've got, um, you know, the six hours in which they plan to deploy things and then they can do a remote shutdown command if um, if there's any interference or if the vehicle is still making noise after its deployment. Uh, and then the, the FCC application includes like a worst comes to worst case scenario. FX2 uh, has only 24 hours worth of battery life. Uh, so they're like, for sure, after after deployment, we're only going to be able to make uh, trouble for 24 hours uh, in the worst case scenario. LTE-1 has got a, a bigger battery and I, I'm assuming solar panels on board to power the um, the electric engine, but I mean, who knows? Maybe they maybe they're just running off of batteries because they're um, only planning to de do deorbit uh, demonstration. And then uh, finally, I thought it'd be good to mention the backup satellite. This is Orbit Fab's uh, Tenzing vehicle, and, and that's the one that probably is not on board. Uh, I, I don't think that there's any way for me to go find out if. Uh, what what the final uh, payloads were until it launches and then they then they say it. But yeah, that's that's the vehicle that may or may not be on there. Um, and what's really cool is like Transporter Two um, represents you know all these different companies. It's not it's 88 payloads. It's not 88 uh, different companies, um, but it represents a bunch of different countries as well. I, I think it's like 10 countries or something. Uh, five to ten countries provided uh, uh, payloads that are flying on this. So, it's th this is really where we're getting into you know true commercial space, right? Like all of humanity is putting things on one vehicle and launching into space. It's just cool. It, it makes mm -hmm. it makes my little uh, space hippie heart happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd read. Uh, I think it's it's uh, Kuwait's first small sat. Oh, that's correct. Yep. So there you go. That's uh, that's transported too. I am so sorry for making assumptions uh, and making an ass out of me an umption. So the last time that uh, or the last launch of the Dove sets, they were exactly like eighty-eight of them. Uh, so maybe that's why you oh, made really? that association. No, yeah. no, 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 no. It had not. It was nothing that clever. No, it was okay. nothing <laughs> that clever. It was just they launch on every darn rideshare mission possible. So that was my assumption. Just just watch though. Like we're gonna get a correction burn where they're like, hey, actually, uh they there are doves flying. They just uh are you know, they're they're next to the second stage engine. They're deploying them from the bottom. Uh, uh and, and so they're they're not actually on the Sherpas or something dumb like that. Uh or you know, they're they're duct taped on or something. Who even knows at this point? Stick it wherever you can find a spot. All right, so let's do three short and sweet. And Ben, what is the first one? IROSAs have been installed. So the first pair of ISS rollout solar arrays were successfully, though not uneventfully, installed this week on the P6 truss. The first spacewalk, EVA-74, saw Shane Kimbra returning to the Quest airlock when the display and control module on his suit stopped working. Uh, he returned to the airlock for a warm restart. The spacewalk ended with the first IROSA soft docked, but unable to deploy due to structure interference. 
Two more spacewalks, EVA 75 and 76, saw the install completed and the first of each iRosa's 20 kilowatts pouring into the station. All right, and then next up, Starship Booster prototype nears completion. According to Elon Musk via Twitter, Starship Booster 3 is almost fully assembled with 24 rings stacked over the past six weeks. Completion of Booster 3 is expected sometime in mid-July. Hot gas RCS thrusters have also been spotted on the Super Heavy booster. This booster will not fly to orbit, but the following one is intended for orbital launch, according to Musk. Construction has yet to begin on Booster 4, and given the rate of progress so far on Booster 3, it is expected that an orbital flight of Super Heavy will occur no earlier than late August or September. So um, we think that that's right, but I expect to maybe get a correction. But <laughs> Just subtract all those numbers by one if you think that, <laughs> I don't know if that's the way uh, uh, you're indexing them. Yeah. And finally, ULA has an engine nozzle issue. During the recent Atlas V launch of the Seabers 5 missile warning satellite, the anomaly was detected aboard the recently upgraded RL-10 upper stage. The engine's new carbon nozzle extension was observed vibrating during flight. Quote, we saw something we didn't understand and didn't expect to happen, said ULA CEO Tori Bruno. Nevertheless, the mission was successful and Seabers 5 was delivered to its orbit. ULA will investigate the issue to determine what changes, if any, need to be made to the nozzle extension. Pending further investigation into the anomaly, the carbon nozzle will not be used on upcoming Atlas V missions. Okay, so this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have three winners, the Greek, Kyle Foster, and Ben Hallert. These are both uh, not just the event, but a, a proper, clear description of uh, the clue as well. So yeah, the fullest credit for well, everyone. Bonus points, great. Bonus points. <laughs> yeah. Good clue. Good guess. Cool. Um, yeah, so the clue was not all hope is lost. It will return twice. So that really got me thinking. I had no idea what that was about. Um, and actually, the clue that I have for the next one is not too dissimilar. But we'll, I, noticed I guess that. we'll get to that. Yeah, it does seem to be a little bit of a theme. <laughs> I noticed when you wrote down the, your clue, yeah. What's going on with this one, then? I guess we'll start with the, the current yes, week. Th this, this was a saga, all right. And so, But it, it begins uh, on the 3rd of July, 1998, and it was the launch of the Nozomi mission. Uh, and so Nozomi was a, uh, it was a uh, Japanese spacecraft. And uh, again, let me just tell you, this is a uh, quite, quite, quite a saga. And um, uh, so it was uh, before launch, uh, it was called Planet B was what it was known as, and then it was renamed to Nozomi, which means hope in Japanese. And so that's where the uh, the hope in Not All Hope is Lost, It'll Return Twice comes from. Uh, but as for what the rest of the clue is, uh, really got to talk about this mission profile, what, <laughs> what actually happened over the course of uh, half a decade, essentially. <laughs> and so um, it was designed in particular to study uh, the interaction of the Martian atmosphere with the solar wind. So uh, last week we talked about the uh, Rocket Lab's, uh, you know, taking uh, Escapade on the Photon spacecraft. And so, you know, a similar kind of thing here. You know, this, it's not the only mission to have done that. MAVEN, for example, is designed to, you know, be able to study the Martian atmosphere and uh, Mars Express to an extent as well. And so uh, the plan, right, was, you know, it would be put in this, you know, highly eccentric orbit, uh, 150 kilometers by 15 Martian radii, which is about 50,000 kilometers for its uh, Apoarian. And so that's, again, to kind of right, really sample through and uh, the magnetosphere uh, and the magneto tail of Mars, as well as, you know, be able to get, you know, uh, closer in measurements and further ones uh, ones that are further out. It would have launched in 1996, a couple years earlier, but uh, the 
the launch vehicle uh, was delayed. Uh, its development was delayed. And so this was a uh, an M5 or a Mu5 uh, Japanese vehicle. Yeah, Colin asks, does Mars even have a magnetosphere? It does, um, but it's it's very weak. There's only, uh, it's not really intrinsic to it. And so I guess, you know, it's 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 due almost entirely to the, the solar wind impacting it. And so, but yeah, uh, there are pockets of the Martian surface that still have some locked in past magnetism. But um, that's not, yeah, not a, not a global, it's not a dipole like the Earth's magnetic field is. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, going back to 1998. So this is pre-JAXA. And so this was a, a mission, uh, specifically the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, or ISAS, um, which was one of the three entities that uh, bureaucratically Gundam together to form, um, <laughs> or, sorry, bureaucratically Voltron together to form uh, <laughs> JAXA. And so if you catch me saying JAXA at some point during this uh, uh I'll have to do a little uh, TCM to correct myself because it's very tempting. The payload itself, uh, kind of give you a description of it. Um, it's kind of uh, like a uh, a wide square uh, box you can think of, right? The bus itself is would would be a box, but it was kind of beveled at the edges and, or at the corners, and um, you know it's wider than it is tall. And on the one end, you have your nice big uh, antenna, uh, and then on the other end, you've got uh, of the, the wide ends. Uh, the other end, you've got the propulsion, and then coming around, you got two big you know solar panels that kind of stretch out. And, uh, you know, uh, antennas, uh, you know, different things uh, for the instruments. And so uh, there were 14 or 15 instruments on board, depending on which uh, uh, sources you cite. But the upshot is, is that, you know, there's there's a whole suite of them for a lot like we talked about with Escapade last week. There's a whole suite of them that are related to measuring the particles in the magnetotail. There's a bunch of them that are designed uh, to measure the radio waves coming from uh, the magnetic uh, uh interaction with the uh, solar wind. Um, uh, a classic, right? Just a, a long boom. I think it was a 10 meter long boom. So, you know, they're nice and, you know, 30 feet ish uh, with, uh, you know, the ma uh, three magnetometer instruments on board. Uh, would have had a nice camera uh, that actually France had built and provided, uh, which could have given you a 100 meter resolution of the surface. So something that, you know, always getting more eyes on Mars is always fun and cool. And uh, there were some other instruments that were built by, um, it was quite international, uh, the, by United States, Germany, Canada, and Sweden. All uh, were going to have their own kind of instruments on board. And so the idea is, you know, you launch this thing uh, and the launch went fine. Uh, then it just chills in a uh, four-month parking orbit uh, with a uh, lunar flyby. And this uh, type of thing had been done previously uh, by uh, uh, Japanese missions, uh, Hiten and Geotail. And then uh, after that uh, lunar flyby, you got a nice little 10-month cruise uh, to Mars. Um, and a, uh, and that would be that would be all set. I don't know how much detail if, if I should go into this, but like... Yes. So, okay. Yes, you should. <laughs> so what actually happens, okay? Well... It goes, uh, the launch is fine, um, which, by the way, the M5, you know, it, it, it launched, you know, in the 90s, a bunch of missions, and it only had one launch failure, but most, most of these missions had total total issues um, with them. Some of them uh, were complete failures, some of them had only partial failures, but, like, every spacecraft that's sent up seemed to have some, like, maybe one out of the eight or so uh, launches uh, had a spacecraft that might have been flawless, you know, in terms of its mission. And so this one was definitely one of the ones that had issues. Okay. It goes into this uh, 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 orbit. All right, everything's fine so far. And then in December of 98, so this is, you know, uh, five months or whatever after, uh, you know, uh, its launch, it does its uh, swing by of Earth uh, with a nice uh, uh, seven-minute long burn. But the uh, oxidizer valve did not open all the way. 
And so as a result, it had a 100 meter per second uh, delta V deficit, was not going to be nice and cruising, uh, you know, 10 months to Mars and everything being A-OK. At the same time, it also had to do, uh, it also had done 18 uh, trajectory correction maneuvers, uh, which basically kind of left the spacecraft short on fuel. And so they're in this tough situation here, but, you know, uh, ISAS is very, you know, clever, industrious, and they come up with a, uh, a new plan. And the, the plan is that, uh, and, and, and right, we've seen, uh, you know, Japan do this with uh, Akatsuki, which actually is uh, successfully, you know, still orbiting around Venus today, where their initial shot uh, didn't work, and so they had to come up with a different orbital plan to get there. And so in this case, um, the new plan was four years later, you can do a succession of Earth flybys, okay? And so this would be now December of 2002 and June of 2003. And these Earth flybys would use what's called the solar gravity assist or solar gravity maneuver. And it basically, uh, there's there's really cool papers that go into a lot of details uh, about this. But the upshot is, is that by, um, you're not really using the Earth's gravity um, so much as if you're just in the same frame as the Earth moving around the sun, uh, the sun's gravitational field at the Earth's location is enough to either accelerate you or deaccelerate you. And in the case of one earlier mission, they used that deacceleration to be able to send it to the moon. Uh, I think it's called Lunar A or something like that. Uh, but in this case, right, they want to use this solar gravity assist to give it more orbital energy from the sun and launch it out to Mars. So pretty, pretty wild, pretty, uh, you know, difficult thing to do. Uh, but it was made more difficult <laughs> because as the spacecraft is, uh, you know, getting ready for its December flyby of the Earth, um, a solar flare <laughs> happens. <laughs> and I checked online, it was close to a solar maximum. And this solar flare damaged the spacecraft's onboard communications. Uh, for a couple of months, the antennas were down, as well as the power systems. And that power system uh, getting fried uh, turn out to be a real issue. And, and all of this, uh, when I, when I like learned that, um, because the launch vehicle delayed it by two years, uh, this could have been a successful Martian orbiter probably if it had launched in 1996. Uh, even if it still had the, the, the malfunctioning valve, um, if they came up with this clever, uh, uh, series of maneuvers, they still could have gotten there. So, like, are you saying that it might have been successful just because it wouldn't have been during solar maximum? Or just that it wouldn't have had this particular solar flare fry it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm wondering if they take that into consideration, you know, like, I mean, like, had they known that they had to launch it then, you know, during solar maximum, that, that they would have made it a little bit more robust, or if it was just, you know, a very, like, bad luck incident where, you know, because like getting hit by a solar flare, I guess it would have to be pointed mm -hmm. in your direction. And so maybe the chances of that happening are pretty low. You know, like I'm just wondering how much they take that into consideration when they build that's, these spacecraft. That's a great question because I, yeah, I, I've never read about, you know, that like a mission being moved or like, you know, the plan changing because of taking that into account. But um, I mean, Japan's been hosed by <laughs> maybe hose isn't the right word, but they've been uh, <laughs> they've been negatively impacted by solar flares before. They uh, The Hayabusa one, I believe, got blasted by a solar flare um, oh, really? en route to Itokawa. And so, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, even though it's maybe it's just something that like, you know, you, you just have to accept or like, you know, they just, yeah, they, uh, yeah. I, I wonder if, if they ever do, you know, take into account, you know, solar maxima and minima as, you know, yeah. good or bad windows for launching your spacecraft. Yeah, I think I think good and bad windows for sure. But I don't think that they like 
I don't think they'll specifically shield a vehicle more because they're going to be launching at a solar maximum. Mm -hmm. Like, un unless they were, you know, doing some outer solar system mission where mm -hmm. you like really have to hit a certain launch window and you your only choice is to fly during a solar maximum and you really are going to spend a lot of money. So you maybe, but I don't know. It's just, <laughs> Right. It's well, it's what, what it's you, an unusual thought, David, and like I I really like the fact that I mm -hmm. never would have thought of that, and it was like the first thing in your mind. I guess what we would need to know is what are the chances during a solar maximum of being hit with a solar flare, and you know if they're pretty low, then I guess there's no point. Mm -hmm. doing well, in the extra solar work maxima there. are every it's like every ten years, right, or is it every five years? I think it's every yeah. twelve, oh, or no, is it eleven? 11 I think eleven, yeah. but you know oh, that's that's there's a fit to it, and so a decade's yeah. good enough. <laughs> so I I bet I bet if you were to look into the history, there were fewer interstellar vehicles flying every eleven years. Yeah, because I mean, because that would be the thing, right? Yeah, rather than like you know adding mass and shielding your spacecraft, just delay your launch by. You don't even have to wait all the way till minimum. Just wait till like you know a couple yeah. of years, and then you're well off the uh, peak activity, and maybe that would be worth it I, I just well i i'll bet you i'll bet you that even proposals go down during solar maxima i bet you that there's like maybe not a subconscious uh effect but i'll bet you that people propose them won't propose them if there's a chance that they'll be uh flying during a solar maximum i mean it's probably not like a like a major effect but I bet you that mm -hmm. there's like a tiny little flutter. We should look at uh uh cuz Mars right with the with very tight windows, right? Every couple of years mm -hmm. and so that would mm -hmm. be interesting to compare how many missions. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've got so that's a good control, right? You've got all of yeah. them to Mars. They all are like have these orbital mechanics windows and then yeah. see whether or not the number goes up or down depending on when or, yeah. when that window coincides with that's, solar. That's that's very clever study design. <laughs> Thank you. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's write a paper. <laughs> okay. So poor Hope Nozomi gets blasted by this flare. Uh, and, and, and so a quick digression on the antennas on board. Um, this is something that uh, I, I had noticed before, but I don't think I ever talked about it because I just think it's such a neat idea. Is um, I mentioned, right, you've got this the large uh, high-gain antenna, right, which is a big directional one uh, that's sitting on top of the spacecraft. And um, because it's, a, it's, it's not an off-axis, you know, parabolic antenna like you sometimes see like you know uh, home uh, tv receivers uh, if you get you know satellite tv uh but because you have the um the receiver or the feed uh where all the you know incoming signal gets focused to or gets transmitted from because that feed is blocking part of the dish on the far side of the feed you can often put your a low gain antenna there and so a lot of missions have done this. Like if you look at Cassini or, you know, New Horizons, you look at where their big high gain antenna is, you'll notice there's another tiny one sticking out on top <laughs> uh, where the feed is. And that's because, you know, I guess there's nothing to lose there. And then plus, you know, if you're ever aiming your high gain antenna at Earth, you know, you're always going to have a low gain antenna aimed in the same direction. That was um, the, two of the three antennas on board. There was the high gain antenna with the low gain sitting on top of the feed. And then there was another low gain antenna um, uh, on the other side of the spacecraft. So on the same uh, side as where the propulsion was. And so uh, there was a mix of um, uh, S-band uh, communications communications were used for the uplink and then uh, S and X were used for the downlink. But the S-band downlink lost, uh, was lost from this uh, uh, getting fried. And in fact, um, 
it was a good two months that uh, it sounds like all communications were lost, <laughs> uh, but that they had permanently lost their S-band downlink capabilities. Okay, so that was, you know, very scary two months. But at least it came back to some degree and they could use, you know, uh, the high gain antenna to an extent as well as uh, the low gains. Um, well, actually, it's unclear. The low gains might have actually been fried entirely as well. Um, it was a little ambiguous uh, from the from some of the documents that I said there that I read. And uh, but much worse than that, I would say, is the telemetry. The telemetry was kaput for good. They were not able to get any measurements coming from the spacecrafts onboard telemetry. They're doing these wild maneuvers <laughs> to try to salvage the failed burn, and they don't even have telemetry now for that. So they had to call up, you know, some friends at, you know, NASA and JPL using the Deep Space Network and, you know, say, please, uh, when it gets close enough to the Earth, um, could you basically use, you know, uh, range and Doppler measurements so we can get, try to characterize its orbit and its attitude and because it, it's a spin stabilized spacecraft, but was drifting. And then based on that, <laughs> we're still going to do the burns during these flybys, but we're going to do it, you know, based on not getting consistent telemetry the whole time. And so uh, that was the goal <laughs> that they were doing. It was very difficult. Um, there, there's an uh, interesting paper. I'll be in the show notes if you want to see the, the details. But like the Doppler measurements were tough to make because the high gain antenna uh, uh, beam was drifting uh, away from the Earth. And so they had to actually look at a side lobe. So not even like the main lobe where you know you're because because you can't beam it perfectly you're gonna some of the energy is going to go off to the side and even some of the energy in other directions and things like that and so that they had to use the lower a lower power side lobe to kind of uh uh lock on uh uh during all of this and um at the same time the spinning was introducing doppler effects to it and it was uh it was a big mess <laughs> essentially but they pulled it off what <laughs> i told you this is wild <laughs> oh my goodness! I've never heard of this before. This is that's doing it blind. Absolutely yeah. crazy. Like I thought, I thought you had misspoke when you said that they weren't getting telemetry back. Because mm -hmm. I was like, it, that I couldn't have understood him because like that means that they don't have communication <laughs> with a satellite. But so, mm -hmm. but so they could yell at the spacecraft and the spacecraft could hear them, but the spacecraft couldn't talk back. This sounds like uh like a like a TV show. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It is it was it was audacious and they Good lord. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to give any spoilers, but I mean, ultimately though, well, so 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 that's so right. So that's that's the situation they're dealing with with these flybys. Now, that's all the communication side. I told you the power systems, uh some of the power systems got fried as well, including um a power um a power cell that was responsible for the attitude control heating system. So long story short, the hydrazine fuel on board froze. And they somehow <laughs> were able to orient the spacecraft so that the sunlight would melt the hydrazine before the burns so they would still be able to fire at least. And they actually did it. And using this, you know, look, you know, making the orbital measurements from the ground, melting <laughs> the hydrazine this way both flybys worked yeah <laughs> chris in the chat that's some kerbal engineering right there for sure 
And yeah, both of these flybys worked and they were heading to Mars. <laughs> and like, it's like, talk about a wonderful uh, salvaging uh, this mission, right? And so, you know, not all hope was lost. It returned, it'll return twice uh, the clues referencing these two flybys of the Earth to basically give it enough uh, Delta V to head to Mars. That's great. It's cruising towards Mars. Uh, five days before the insertion burn, they uh, try to orient the spacecraft in the right direction. And uh, nope. Did not work. They could not orient it at that point uh, due to lingering electrical issues from the power supply short from the solar flare. And so after all of that in December 2003, they could not orient it correctly to perform an insertion burn and orbit around Mars. Uh, so the small thrusters were fired to move it a little further away out. And so it basically flew a thousand kilometers uh from Mars at its you know closest approach and is now just in a heliocentric orbit, <laughs> uh, forever out there, kind of just drifting away in space. <laughs> so so what was the point? Like they weren't going to be able to get data back from the vehicle. Why did they keep? Yeah. So so that's a good question. <laughs> um, maybe yeah, pure spite. Mike says in the chat. I'm thinking you know maybe just to see if they could do it. I mean you know you gotta understand mm. like how long this was yeah. right. Yeah. This is you know five years. And they had all these issues and they had this thing limp on to Mars. And it's like, okay, well, let's see if we can just get into orbit. And nah. <laughs> and so they could have been, uh, you know, because there's really only been a handful of, uh, you know, nations that have been able to successfully put something in orbit around Mars. And Japan is not one of those, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess it was just to see if they could, you know, like to just yeah. to or to learn as much as they can from mm -hmm. that experience and make the best of a bad situation so why not yeah they, they knew the science was toast <laughs> it's expensive to do all this work it's it's certainly like praiseworthy like that's that's really cool this is a laudable achievement but I, I'm shocked that a government was willing to pay for it. And I, and I think part of it, too, is just, you know, the, the kind of know-how that comes from this. You know what I mean? Like, there there is a a, a value to that, like, that is, is kind of tangible. The experience, yeah. the expertise, the calculations that they had to do, you know, I think all of that would be was enough for them to say it's worth, you know, operating this thing, even though we know it's not going to be able to get us science. But yeah. otherwise, and so I guess, you know, you do have to make that call, I suppose, as a as a space uh, agency, and they they opted <laughs> to, to go for it. But I definitely see what you mean, Ben, because I mean this thing had to, I mean this was a lot of work to just train you know your people on orbital mechanics and yeah. and also this 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 uh, the, if, if you want to Google, I mean we'll we'll have it in the in the show notes, but um they refer to it as uh, Delta VLBI. This is a kind of uh, basically using ground-based radar to get the telemetry of it and deal with the fact that the Doppler measurements were an absolute mess. And so um, so that's Nozomi. Wow. Uh, all really hope incredible. ultimately was lost. But <laughs> and, and I do want to point out something, too, that I think uh, Mike uh, uh, also mentioned in the chat, which I think is interesting, is that both the UAE and Japan have launched missions to Mars named Hope. So Nozomi and um, uh, Al-Amr, I think it's called. Al-Amal. All in all, there I you go. Remember. Yeah, all in all. Mm. All right. Well, Dennis, that was an absolute trip. Uh, <laughs> more <laughs> ways than one. Uh, um, we are going to be taking next week off. Um, plans are getting a little complicated for uh, all three. A little complicated for all three of us, and equals too complicated for any of us. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, 
in two weeks, it will be the 13th through the 19th of July. That's going to be the, the week range. Uh, David, do you have a clue for us? Yes. Yeah, so you don't have to guess for next week because uh, that would be on July 4th, but we'll be taking that week off. So in two weeks, in 2009, the clue is Hope Floats. So another hope-themed clue. Not the same hope that Dennis is referring to. And not the movie, I think, right? Wasn't that like a right, Sandra movie? <laughs> I'm just pulling that up on Wikipedia now, yeah. <laughs> hope Floats. I think I actually saw that. It was I mean, it was all, it was okay. Um <laughs> but uh Hope Hope Floats. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. so that's your clue for next week in 2009. Okay. Well, if you think you know uh who Hope is or how she is floating, um send us a tweet with the hashtag thisweeksf and good luck everybody. Good luck. Well, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, we've got a couple launches and a couple other things you can watch on TV. Actually, you're probably going to watch them all on TV now that I think about it. But, <laughs> but yeah, you can see a launch actually happen if you're lucky enough to get to one. So, what is that first launch? Yeah, first up is uh, Progress. M- oh, I just got what you mean by you're probably going to watch them on TV. Okay, I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> okay, so this is Progress MS17, uh, aka uh, 78P. Uh, of course, it's going to be launching on a Soyuz uh, 21A. Uh, let's see. Th- this was this was delayed from last week, if I remember correctly. Oh no, no, we covered it last week because it's coming out right after the show comes out. So if you're listening to this just as it's come out, maybe you have enough time. So that's uh, Tuesday, January 29th at 23:27 hours UTC. On the 1st of July is the launch of OneWeb 8, and that'll be launching aboard a Soyuz 2.1B with a Frigate M upper stage. So this is a batch of 36 satellites for OneWeb. Um, Not as many as Starlink, but they're, you know, kind of catching up. Well, they're not catching up, but (laughs) I don't think that that they're going to launch as many in total. But uh, yeah, they're doing well. So you're probably going to watch this one on TV, like I said, because unless you have time to go to Russia and I don't know how close you can get to the Vostochny Cosmodrome in Siberia. Um, Although I imagine it's pretty, well, it's probably still bad this time of year. Do like people go and watch these launches? I don't even know. So that'll be launching. It looks like an instantaneous launch window on July 1st at 1248 UTC. And that's launching from Cosmodrome Site 1S. is the launch pad so check that one out and our final two events of the week are both uh comings and goings of the international space station and so you can watch them on nasa tv so uh later uh that day uh from the uh the one web launch uh will be uh a uh coverage of the docking of the uh progress 78 cargo ship to the station uh, this is again uh, July 1st, and uh, coverage will begin at 8:15 p.m. with the docking scheduled at 9:03 p.m. Uh, those in Eastern Daylight Times. And then a few days later, on July 6th, coverage of the undocking of SpaceX's CRS-22 cargo craft uh, uh, will begin at 10:45 a.m. with the undocking itself scheduled at 11 a.m. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's gear with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dot for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. 
I, I've been jingling these buttons from Sticker Mule for about five minutes now. We also uh, now have uh, buttons. Um, there are pins, like enamel pins. There are buttons. There are stickers. There are other kinds of stickers and even more different stickers. So it's not just Mission Patches t-shirts and hoodies. Um, but thank you to Sticker Mule for um, like having sales going constantly. <laughs> That's why I've got so many uh, different things in the mini merch pack. You get a bunch of tiny little things. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orwell Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.